Hello, friends, and welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. We are thrilled to be a part of your spiritual journey and look forward to helping you discover God's plan for your life. To find more messages like this, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast feeds. To stay connected with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the handle CCGF01 and check out our website, ccgf.org, for all of this information and more. Now, here is this week's message, grace and peace to you. Hey everyone, I want to take us directly to a time of prayer this morning as we begin the message. I'm going to call this an attitude adjustment prayer. You ever need one of those? If you're honest with yourself, you might need it right now. I needed an attitude adjustment this morning, and so I went to Psalm 139. Let me read to you what I read this morning. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 say, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Our prayer is going to imitate that prayer from David in the Psalms this morning. And I'm also going to encourage you to do this. Would you adopt a specific posture of prayer? Now listen, hear me out on this. Kids, you can do this. Spouses, give your, your, your husband or wife the liberty to take a posture this morning. No judging. It's all good. I'm going to ask you to open up your hands like this. And look, this isn't mystical or anything special about it. In fact, the posture is merely pointing to a greater reality that we come before God with nothing, with empty hands, letting go of the things that might be holding us back this morning, a bad attitude open to receiving the things of God. Would you adopt this posture this morning as we go into a time of prayer? Let's pray together. Oh God, you are holy, holy, holy. More incredible, more powerful, more majestic than we can ever imagine, God. Oh God, we praise you for the work that's happening not only in our own city, but around the world. God, thank you for Jim West. Thank you for the mission team who is a part of your work there. We pray, God, that your grace and your provision would fall on that community of children and leaders, even at this time, Gordon, minister to them. And God, we also ask that you administer to us. We open our hands before you, God, and we come before you, and we give you, Lord, our pain. Open hands. God, we give you the things we're anxious about. God, we release our anxiety. God, we, we open up our hands and we let go of our sin this morning. And we remember the words of the psalmist who says, search me, God. Lord, search us. Know our hearts, God. Lord, test us and our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us, God. And God, lead us in the way that is everlasting. God, through your Holy Spirit, teach us, direct us. Perhaps convict us this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go directly to chapter 42 in the book of Genesis. We are continuing our series this morning, Meant for Good. It's a look at the life of Joseph. This is week five. If you haven't caught the previous four messages, I encourage you to go to YouTube. and You can subscribe to our channel when you get there and go back and watch these teachings. We believe that they will encourage you and challenge you and bless you because they're from God's word, not from us. So let's go to Genesis 42 picking up right away in verse 1. 
The scripture says, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. Let me give you a very fast, quick summary of what's transpired so far in the life of Joseph. Joseph, of course, was the pampered, favored son of his father, Jacob. However, his brothers didn't share that that love for Joseph. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. And when Joseph was sold into slavery, he landed in Egypt, was a servant, an important servant, in the household of an important Egyptian official. But there he was wrongfully accused of rape. And so Joseph found himself in prison. And while he was in prison, he was also forgotten. But a miraculous thing happened. Joseph was elevated when he explained the dreams that Pharaoh had had to the position of governor in all of Egypt. And now he sits, as we come to this passage today, in a place where he has great influence and power and authority in Egypt. And he is helping prepare for a coming worldwide famine. So Joseph has gone from the penthouse to the outhouse to the penthouse again. And now we pick up here. And I love how the contemporary English version translates verse 1. Let me read you this quote that is accredited to Jacob, the patriarch. He says to his kids when he looks at them, his sons, he says, why are you just sitting here staring at each other? I feel like as a parent, this is really applicable to my children during the quarantine. Don't you just want to say to your kids, why are you just sitting there staring at one another? Maybe you should try this. It's straight from the Bible. But, but really, we get a sense from that quote of the tension that is present in the family dynamic of this family. We've been taken back to Canaan, back to the land where Joseph came from. And we see that there's this tension among the brothers, among the family. And that sets the table for where we're headed today. Let's go back to Genesis 42. Back to Genesis 42, picking up in verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. So here we have the brothers bowing before Joseph. Go back to Genesis 37. Do you remember the dreams that Joseph had? Grand dreams where his family would be bowing before him. So in part, we see a fulfillment of these dreams. Stay tuned, there's more coming. But we see a fulfillment of these dreams in this this portion of the text. And the brothers have to think, man, what's going on here, right? They had rejected Joseph's dreams. And they thought, that rejecting those dreams would be enough to destroy those dreams, to halt them from happening. Though they are unaware, though they are unwitting, they are playing their part in the dream that they thought 
they had avoided. This reminds me of what it says in Psalm 14.1. In Psalm 14.1, the scripture says that the fool says to himself, there is no God. We have people in our culture today, perhaps you're one of them, who say, there is no God. It's almost like the brothers saying, oh, these dreams aren't real. They say to themselves, there is no God. God's not real. God's not active in the world. And somehow those who do not believe in God think that that would free them then from, from his laws and his commands and his ways and his word. But it's not true. You see, the dream is happening. And when I talk about the dream, I'm talking about the dream of thy kingdom come, God's reality, his future reality of an eternal life is happening. The future is at work even right now in the midst of a, of a pandemic and panic around the world. You can bet on it. We see a hint of that here in this text. Let's go back to the scripture, Genesis 42 again. We're going to pick up in verse 10. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now our father, and one is no more. Okay, I want to hone in on something that these guys are saying here. They're trying to sell to Joseph. Two things they say. One thing they say is this. They say that we are honest men. Oh, really? You mean the guys who told their dad that their younger brother was eaten by an animal? Remember that? Honest men? Really? I don't think so much. You know, they, they say they're honest. The translation of that word is upright. They, they've convinced themselves somehow that they're upright. A second thing they say here, did you catch this? When they talk about their family, they say that, quote, one is no more. The one of the brothers is no more. Well, that's a nice way to put it, isn't it? I think what they meant to say is, one of our brothers, we threw him in a pit, he got sold into slavery, and we don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he's dead or alive. But conveniently, they didn't quite put it that way, did they? You know, it makes you think that these brothers, in glossing what, what has actually happened, have done one of two things. Either these statements that they're making are evidence that they have been working hard to have a scrubbed social profile. You know what I mean? They're, 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 kind, of, they're kind of managing the narrative that's happening around them. We do this on social media. We do this on Facebook. We control the narrative about us. We only show you or tell you what you really want to know about our lives. That sound familiar? Or if it's not the social scrubbing, uh, the, the scrubbing of their social profile, then it's that they had told themselves this lie about what happened to Joseph continuously, and they now actually believed it. And they have told themselves a lie so much so that they believe it. Sometimes we believe our own lies about our lives and the, and the events of our lives. So here's the question. Are you lying to yourself in any way? Are you lying to yourself about your past? Are you lying to yourself about your true nature? 
Can you be honest with yourself about these things? I think we see the brothers here kidding themselves about the reality of who they are and what they've done. Let's go back to Genesis 42. Picking back up in verse 14, I'm going to read you a longer section here. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you're spies, and this is how you will be treat, tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. And they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep. But then he came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver in a sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, what is this that God has done to us? So we come to the crux of the passage, I believe, for us today, and here's something that we see. You get the sense of this guilty conscience the brothers have, right? Well, this tells us this. The passage of time does not erase a guilty conscience passage of time doesn't cure it. You know, neither do, do the lies that we feed ourselves, nor the glossing over of what really happened. Now, none of these things will erase a guilty conscience. So that means that even after everyone in the family grows up, you might still have a guilty conscience about what's transpired. That means that even after the crime is dismissed in the courtroom, the guilty conscience will still linger even after the divorce is final and you have walked away from the covenant of marriage and the relationship, the passage of time won't erase the guilty conscience, even after things done in secret are far from anyone's awareness. The guilty conscience lingers. Have you found this to be true in your life? Can you think of a time? I want to tell you three results of a guilty conscience. I believe we see these in the passage that we've read here this morning. Three results of a guilty conscience. Let's look at them. Number one, the first result of a guilty conscience is this. You are locked to a past moment. Locked to a past moment. The word that comes to mind is the word faded. F-A-T-E-D. Faded. Somehow that you feel destined 
to, to turn out a certain way, that your life will turn out a certain way. We see this reflected in the brothers. I mean, look at verse 22. Listen to their quote in verse 22. They say this, now we must give an accounting for his blood. You get the sense that even though what's transpiring here is 22 years, that's what we understand, 22 years after the brothers had thrown Joseph in the pit, they're now middle-aged men, that this has been hanging over their head. They're waiting for the other shoe to drop. These brothers have, have a guilty conscience and it has locked them to a past moment. You know, you get a sense that they have this view of God. And the view of God that they have is through their own guilt. And so they think that God operates this way, tit for tat. We do this, and so therefore God takes us out at the knees. God has one coming for us. God has it in for us because of the way we behave. This is the, the, the product, the result of a guilty conscience. So the, the first thing we see is that you're locked to your past. You're locked to a past moment, specifically. Let's look at the second thing that's a result of a guilty conscience. The second thing is this. You are closed to any new possibility. Closed to new possibilities. The word that comes to mind is the word unworthy. You think of yourself unworthy. We see this reflected in verse 28. Again, listen to the words of the brothers. What do they say? They get this silver in their sack. They have provisions provided for them from Joseph for their way back home, and they are freaking out. It says they're terrified, and they say this. They say, what is this that God has done to us? They see themselves as unworthy. They feel like their life is irrevocably changed, irrevocably damaged. And I'm afraid that some of us, because of our past, because of the guilty conscience that we carry, we feel like our lives are irrevocably damaged. We feel like this, God could never use me. Oh, you don't know what I've done. God could never use me. And so what do we do? We don't engage in leadership in our families, in our household. We fail to share our faith with our neighbors and our co-workers. We refuse to take a position of leadership in the church because we feel like we're not worthy. That's the consequence. That's the result of a guilty conscience. So you feel like you're unworthy. You, you feel like th there's no possibilities of something new in, our, in your life. Here's the third one. The third result of a guilty conscience is that you are not free enough to have faith. You're not free enough to have faith. Look again at verse 21. The brothers, here's their words. They say this. They say to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. Surely we're being punished. They're bound. That's the word that comes to mind. They're bound. They're tied up. They're chained. And they're not free enough to, one, interact or receive from this man, their brother, even though they don't know it's him. And I think that for us as people, our guilty consciences, our past, can, can make us feel like we cannot come to God. We use it as an excuse to not come before God. It's like a ball and chain, this guilty conscience. It's as if it's locked us up. And so those are three results of a guilty conscience. One, that you're, that you're uh, locked to a past moment. Two, that you're closed to any new possibility. And three, that you're not free enough to have faith. But here's what it all means to us. You cannot embrace your future 
until you've dealt with your past. The brothers teach us that, don't they? You can't embrace your future. You can't look ahead to what God might have in your life. You can't get past the present moment. You can't look to the future until your past has been dealt with. The brothers came to Egypt wanting to buy grain. But Joseph gradually awakened them to their real need. You know what their real need was? They needed forgiveness. They needed to be forgiven. So here's a question. This is very important. That I would ask all of us this morning. What hidden sin exists in your life? What hidden sin is there? And look, you might be thinking, hey, he's talking about something big, right? Some kind of big, quote unquote, big sin. Well, maybe, maybe it is a big sin, but it might be something that's, that's just a part of your everyday flow. Here are three ways you can look at the hidden sin in your life. One, you can look at it as a habit. Two, as a hang-up. Three, as a hurt. Let's talk about these briefly. Do you have some kind of habit in your life that no one else knows about, perhaps, except for you, or at least you think that no one else knows about it? Are you covering up some kind of vice that's been present in your life for a long time? Is there a hidden sin? Some kind of habit you've been hanging on to? Is there a hang-up? I mean, have you been scarred, hurt in the past, and you are holding resentment? And that resentment has turned to anger. Are you withholding forgiveness because of the way you've been treated in the past? Are you carrying that around? Do you have some kind of hang-up? Or is there hurt? Are, are you haunted by your past failing or past failings? Do you got habits? Do you got hang-ups? Do you got hurts? Listen, those things need to come to light. You cannot embrace your future until you've dealt with your past. Habits, hang-ups, hurts. But I'll tell you this, here's how you can take action. You know, Joseph, in the scripture here, is dealing with his guilty brothers using a mix of tough realism, but also deep compassion. And he's moving them slowly towards growth or change. That's what God does with us. I mean, even right now, in this moment perhaps, by his word, or by the worship that we've experienced this morning, God is move, he wants to move you towards growth. And towards change, God uses his word to do that. God uses his Holy Spirit to bring conviction to us. Look at John 16. Go read that this week. The Holy Spirit brings conviction on our lives. And he wants to move us past our sin, past our our habits and our hang-ups and our hurts. He wants to bring conviction to us. I'll tell you this. Give the brothers this much. The brothers did not blame their father for being too passive. They weren't blaming their behavior on that, in this moment at least. The brothers didn't blame Joseph for being too favored. Nor were they they diminishing the wrong they had done by saying they were too young or they didn't know better. They're kind of owning it, despite the fact that they're freaking out. And so here's what we could take away from them in a positive way, and that's this. I'm responsible. You got something that's searing your conscience? You got some kind of habit, hang up, hurt? Listen, take responsibility. Say, I am responsible. I would say this, take responsibility 
for your own failings. That's how you can embrace the future, by dealing with your past and saying, listen, I take responsibility for my own failings. No one else to blame but me. Let me tell you a story from elementary school. This is from the fourth grade. When I was in the fourth grade, there was this girl in my class that I had a crush on, but she wouldn't pay any attention to me. And so one day I figured out that I'm going to get her to pay attention to me. And so at recess, I was playing football with the guys, and I took the football, and I don't know what it was that seized me to do this, but I took the football, and I threw it right at the girl, hit her right in the face. What can I say? I had a way with the women, right? Well, I was bullying, actually. Not very funny in that sense, is it? One of the teachers saw me, sent me to the principal's office, and I got paddled. Yes, I got like a spanking with a big wooden board. I'm that old. And I decided that I was not going to tell anyone about what happened. I wasn't going to tell my parents about this. I was going to hide this from them. So Thursday came and went. Friday, wake up, don't tell the parents about it. All good. I'm feeling like I'm going to get away with this. I wake up on Saturday morning early to watch cartoons. But as I'm in the living room, I have this nagging sense in me as a nine-year-old that somehow I don't deserve to enjoy the freedom to watch Scooby-Doo. And so somehow I got up off the couch, turned off Scooby-Doo, and went up to my parents' room. And I woke up my parents, and I told them what had happened. I was bawling. And I was totally expecting that I was going to get another paddling. I was going to get another spanking or some kind of punishment for this. But the most amazing thing happened. My parents showed me mercy. I think it's probably because they were half awake. But nonetheless, they showed me this mercy. Listen, if, if you are feeling the weight of a guilty conscience, of something that's happened in your life, something you've done, your past, you have a heavenly father that you can go to. And I will tell you this, he is full of mercy. He's full of mercy. Knowing that, you know, we see these brothers, and here they are. They are, they are in turmoil because of what had happened and what they've done, even though it's been 20-plus years. They're totally wracked by this, tormented by what they had done to their brother. When all the while, the one who could give them peace, they were face-to-face -face with him right there. Well, how about you? You got a certain amount of torment about your past, something that's just nagging at you and eating away at you. Let's go face to face with God if that's the case. Let me show you some scriptures. Isaiah 43, 25. Write these down, by the way. Go back to these. Isaiah 43, 25. God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions, your sin, your guilty conscience, for my own sake, and remembers your sins no more. Or go to the New Testament. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, everything. Or how about Romans 8? Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no condemnation, no guilty conscience for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ, 
the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to become, sorry, yes, sinful flesh, to be, be a sin offering. You know, Jesus would encounter people. He would heal them. And Jesus would look and say, your sins are forgiven. So I say this to you, for those of you who have even a mustard seed of faith, just a little bit of faith this morning, because of Jesus, we could say this, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. That's the great hope we have. Let me tell you how this works. I'm going to take you back to Genesis 41. This is last week. Genesis 41, verse 9. There's this one thing that the cupbearer says. You remember the cupbearer? And I love what the cupbearer says. In Genesis 41, 9, the cupbearer says, he says, ah, today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Today I'm reminded of my, of my faults. Today I'm reminded of my sin. The cupbearer said that. You know what it was that I believe tapped him on the shoulder and reminded him of his shortcomings, of his sin? It's the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a part of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here to convict us. And so when, when, when the cupbearer says, I'm reminded of my shortcomings, or we see the brothers being awakened to their own faults and shortcomings and their sin, when I was a fourth grader and I had that moment, the Holy Spirit was convicting of sin. And that same Holy Spirit is at work today and will convict you. And perhaps even right now, as we talk about this and look at this scripture, is convicting you and reminding of your sins right now. Well, would you do something about it? I'll point you to another scripture. And you could string all these together. 2 Corinthians 7.10, first half of the verse. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Godly sorrow, saying, God, I've, I've been wrong. I've sinned. I want to repent. I want to live a new way. That leads to salvation. And listen to this, leaves no regret. No guilty conscience. Liberty, freedom comes from God when we humbly repent and turn to him. The church we want to be begins with a group of people who say, yes, I fear God and I want to know him. I'm convicted of my sin and therefore I will go to him and repent. The kind of church we want to be begins with that step. And so this morning, whether you're a part of our church or not, would you turn to God in your conviction with your guilty conscience and say, God, help me? Would you put your trust in Jesus the one who could take your sorrows and forgive you. Turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. Let me lead us in prayer right now. Bow with me, please. Oh God, we do come before you. And Lord, we acknowledge that we have been sinful, that we have gone our own way. God, we're often haunted by a guilty conscience, habits that are hidden, or at least we think are hidden, hang-ups, about things that have happened in the past and the way that they're binding us up with anxiety and anger. Hurts. Being haunted by things of the past. God, we bring those to you this morning with our hands open. And God, we say this. We believe in Jesus. 
God, we say we believe he is the son of God. God, we say we believe that Jesus died paying for our sins with his blood and his broken body and that he rose again. He paid for us all. He made a way for us all to know you and have eternal life. Lord, we believe in Jesus. Oh God, search us. Know our hearts, God. Test us, Father, and know our anxious thoughts. See, God, if there is any offensive way in us, and then lead us in the way, the way of Jesus, an everlasting way, so we might truly live. Oh, God, thank you. We love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness exemplified through Jesus. We pray it all in his name. Amen.